Wat moet het hier gaan gebeuren? Domitioso wint de eerste Grand Prix. Dit is de Inlab, de MotoGP-podcast van Eurosport. Welkom bij de Inlab, de MotoGP-podcast en podcast van Eurosport. En vandaag hebben we een hele bijzondere gast. We hebben er maar eentje, maar het is een hele bijzondere. In 1982 kwam hij naar Europa en hij reed in zijn eerste seizoen meteen de sterren van de hemel. Hij won de Grand Prix van België op het circuit van Frank Cachan. En een jaar later, in 1983, was hij de jongste wereldkampioen in de 500cc ooit. En twee jaar daarna schreef hij opnieuw geschiedenis door wereldkampioen te worden in de 500cc en in de 250cc in hetzelfde jaar. En dat was nog nooit iemand gelukt. En dat is dit jaar dus precies 35 jaar geleden. En het lijkt ons een geweldige mogelijkheid om eens te praten met de man die dat doet. En dus, ja, ik denk toch dat we het kunnen zeggen... een levende legende, dat is hier echt. Freddy Spencer. Hi, Freddy. Hey, I just doing? did the introduction. Uh, I'm fine. How are you? Just fine. Just fine. Good. Um, just, I uh, just said uh, in, in my introduction... In in, in yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I just said in the introduction that um, the 1985 season... was a sort of a historical season... Because you did something that nobody else had ever done before you, and nobody else did it after you. And that is win the 250 and the 500cc championship in one year. Why did you try and do that? Because everybody knew that it was going to be very difficult. Yeah, you know, um, before me, uh, the last rider who had tried it, um, that would have a chance, really, was Kenny in 1978, the first year that he came over. And he basically, after about five or six races, he stopped the 250 um, and focused on the 500. And um, he, he was also trying to win the 750 World Championship. A lot of people don't remember that, but he was trying to, to win that too. And he obviously stopped that, put all his focus on the 500 because it's difficult, obviously. And it was it was really a, a spur of the moment. Um, decision because in 1984 uh we had the upside down 500 uh, it was honda's uh, hrc's first four cylinders v4 and it had the gas tank on the bottom and it was it was revolutionary in its in its design and it also uh because it proved what worked and what what couldn't work. And that's one reason why we went back to conventional frame in 85. But anyway, about halfway through the season is always the Dutch Grand Prix. And I was, I was winning the Dutch Grand Prix by about 11 seconds already. And uh, the sport plug cap, the uh, clip under the, the cap itself on the plug, I got a little crack and it vibrated off, went on three cylinders. So I came in and little George tried to put it back on. He couldn't. I went back out and then it seized. And anyway, it was as I was riding into the pits and, and I just had this overwhelming sense that this was really almost a nail in the coffin for the championship for 84. And the one thing I'd always wanted to try was, because uh, I like riding the 250, was to Run the you know because I never did I never raced the 250 in the world championships a race or anything went straight to 500s 
And I just got this harebrained idea, and I came off the track and and went and got everybody together. Uh, Irv and Mr. Guma and Mr. Fukui was there from HRC, who was the race team boss, and um, Mr. Rike and Mr. Kanazawa, and we all sit down and talk about it. We, and that's kind of how it started. Now, HRC or Honda was already starting to test the waters with the production base 250 that Joey Dunlop was riding sometimes. It was horrible, though. It wouldn't even qualify because it was based off the production engine. So the only way that we could do it would be to have to build a factory bike. Now, they would have eventually built one, absolutely. But this just brought everything forward. And Mr. Ricky had three months to build the first NSR uh, 250. And between June and September, middle September, they built that bike. And you can imagine in those days that everything was designed by hand. You know, they had some, a little bit of computer you know, technology, not much, but it was basically hand-built, hand-built. And so the cost was astronomical to build something from scratch like that. And, but it was an amazing. And the first time I rode the bike uh, was middle September at Suzuka, and we tested it, and it was, it was like going home. And in fact, that bike is the reason why I won the 500 World Championship, because they were up in the air about which direction to go on the 500 because they'd gone so far one direction, upside down, the bike very flat, really steep steer net angle, all the wrong direction as we would learn as the years would go on. And the 250 gave almost as clean slate of paper as the bike. Had first bike with some rear ride height, a little more trail. And so when I got off the bike, I said, if you could build me a 500 just like this, mm-hmm. I think we'd be in good shape. And sure enough, that was what led to the bike in 85 and, and, uh, it, it was an amazing, amazing progress of just how we got to the, you know, that first step. Uh, everything just kind of fell in place. Do you remember when you last rode or raced a 250 before the uh, 1985 season started? Yeah, it would have been Daytona in 1980. I raced one race. I'd won wow. the 250 championship with Irv, uh, and, you know, the AMA championship in 79. Finished second at Daytona behind Skip Askeland, and I won the rest of the races and won the championship in 79. So we go to Daytona in 1980, and I just signed with Honda. And I was focused on the Superbike, and I got a one-race deal where I could ride Irv's TZ750 at Daytona. And so then the focus was going to be with Honda, which is where I thought I should be. And Mm -hmm. um, so... Irv had the 250 in the truck, and when we got there, that we signed up for the 250 race. I thought, well, let's try to win all three classes. <laughs> and uh, Irv, the bike basically was our 79 bike, and uh, Tony Mang was there, and I wanted to race against him. You know, of course, I'd heard about Tony and stuff. And uh, Randy was there, and riding the 250. Um, and then, um, so that was that was that. And I finished third, and um, and Eddie was there, and so mm-hmm. um, it was it was a great opportunity to to kind of compete one last time on the two fifty. But we didn't have our best, you know. Irv hadn't done any development work and stuff. So, but it was okay, you know. We still yeah. finished third, but that was the last yeah. time I rode a two fifty. Uh huh. Would it be too easy to say, Freddie, that the uh, nineteen eighty five 
250 was basically the engine, um, um, a, v, a V4 cut in two. Basically, yes. Yeah, it was, it was, and like I said, what the 500 ended up being, except with two more cylinders, engine-wise. Yeah, yeah. So it was, yeah. it was basically the half of the 500, even design in design and things. Mm. Yes, it was a yeah. brand new, brand new engine, and basically because of the, you know, that was the other thing that made, like I said, from June of 84 until we got to that first test in at Suzuka. So I rode the 250 and it was really good. Um, I I had a, almost a, a, this incredible crash that nobody saw because at the, in those days at Suzuka, when we would test there because of security in those days, now, you know, you know, everybody brings their bikes and it's, Everybody tests together, and it's really no big deal. In those days, you remember, it, they were really strict on who saw the bikes and and protection, mm -hmm. what you know, with security and everything. And they had security at Suzuka when I was testing 250 the first time. So everybody wasn't on the front straightaway. And in those days, we didn't have a chicane; it was straight onto the front straightaway, the one one thirty that little straight, and then just down the hill in fourth flat, and you'd come down that hill. I come down that hill on the 250, and it and I hit a wet spot, and literally it tucked the front and the lost the rear, and it recovered quicker than I could even respond. So I came in, and it was the fifth lap I was on the bike. I came in and told her, I said, "We're gonna get along really well because it just saved me <laughs> the first time," you know. And from a rider, from a rider's standpoint, those are things that really matters. Is is where you can trust what the bike's going to do on the very limit. And that was something I didn't have with that year's 500 with the gas. It was so unpredictable. And, and I crashed, got hurt a few times yep. because I, yep. I didn't know what the bike was going to do. And, and that's what I told Mr. Ricky. And he would tell that story for years and years later that he knew he could design chassis in a bike. When I told him that, you know, <laughs> that's just, a moment I have to say, you said that you talk about the '84 season. I, I completely understand your, uh, let's say, um, love and hate relationship with that bike. Maybe it was even yeah. more a hate relationship. But I, yeah. honestly, I love the look of the bike. But that's something completely Absolutely. different. It's yeah. why I put that bike on the cover of my book. Yeah, really. A lot of people ask uh -huh. me. Yeah, a lot of people ask me on it's on, on the silhouette. Is is why didn't you choose the you know the bikes you want to championship either 83 bike or the 85 bike and right. i said this this is what i said is that there was that bike from the rear with two with all four exhaust over the top yep. and the sound yep. it had was amazing because the, the engine the um engineers and engine engineers weren't limited because of ground clearance under the mm -hmm. bike so it had huge midsections had a lot of grunt and the sound on it had this deep roar to it <laughs> and and it taught us a lot and so i always say that you know one one thing that that you have to have in this business and any business be successful certainly in sports because you can it happens like that is the will to be able to deal with the struggles and in moments you know like like it, as we were going through that year is you know we had the wheel explode we had these things you got to come back the next race and 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 that bike when it was good like it was in Italy, and I won the race by twenty. I had a twenty second lead halfway through the race and just cruised. It was amazing. 
But then when it wasn't, like we were at Salzburg, I couldn't even finish second, third, you know. Uh, it was it was just one of those one of those bikes that that again unpredictable from my, my standpoint and also in, for the engineers for Irvin everybody trying to work on it. Yeah, you mentioned Irv a couple of times for uh, our listeners and viewers who are not into the history of uh, racing. I have to say that uh, Irv Kanemoto, I've spoken him to him only once for a long time. I think it's not too difficult to speak to her for a long time, by the way. But uh, he told me a lot of things about you. And of course, you got along very, very well with him. You started working together, I think, when you were 16. Why yes. was there this special bond between the two of you? It was interesting because I, I, can, I can tell you the first time I saw her. Um, and we, my dad and I, uh, in the year before I turned professional, this would have been 1977. I was 15, and r road racing on the um, amateur level had really taken off in the United States. It's why that you know there was Steve Baker and Kenny Roberts before me, and there was you know some other you know Rayburn and a lot of the riders that came through dirt tracking because the Grand National Championship. Everybody who's ever watched on any Sunday. If you haven't, you ought to watch it because it gives yep. a perfect example of what it was like in the United States of racing in the 70s, late 60s, 70s, and and why that that flat track and the dirt tracking was was what you aspired to be if you if that's what you wanted. Road racing really was a European sport. Uh, if the match races and the uh, those those races is what brought over the Americans. Um, exactly. It's certainly in the late six, early seventies, and then of course when you had um, Kenny and Steve Baker and Pat Hennon in the mid seventies who came over and, and started tiptoeing a little bit in the in the World Championship. Of course, Kenny in seventy eight, but it was it was the Grand National Championship is is really what what you aspired aspired to want to be. And and but so as an amateur, there was no club racing until the mid seventies. Really, about mm -hmm. seventy three. 75 76 77 in there it just exploded as it is uh today and that's what it that's what really gave the, the proven ground for myself uh eddie randy of course after me kevin you know we all kevin came through the same club kevin swans same club championship i did the crc doug poland same thing um and so it really it really was it was that great opportunity now in those days, sometimes they would have a big event called the Grand National Championship. And they had one of these in, in Mid-Ohio in late uh, 77, in October, at, at Mid-Ohio, Lexington, Ohio. They invited uh, the organizers, uh, the Wera, because they had enough money. They invited Gary Nixon and Randy Mamola to come and race at this event. And so when, when my dad and I got there, there was no parking spaces except next to this this white van. And so we had pulled in and I'm a trailer and stuff. And I'll never forget that I was sitting in the truck. And, and I looked over and I knew that was Gary Nixon because I, I, I'd seen Gary at Daytona. And, of course, and I followed it. And um, so anyway, we parked next to him. Long story short, we started the weekend and I ended up winning the race. Uh, in the rain, and um, I lapped most of the field. And <laughs> uh, 
anyway, Ted Henner, who was another rider, he got second, another really good 250 rider. And I think Gary finished third. Now, Gary almost won the 750 World Championship the year before. I'm 15 years old. So after the race, Herb comes over to my dad and congratulates, you know, and and I didn't know this story till a few years later, but he, he basically said, if you ever need something, my dad never thought about anyone else on the bike with me, but immediately he liked Herb. And he said, well, we're going to be racing in the novice championship the next year. And uh, it would be great. He said, well, you know, he said, my dad said that, you know, Freddie's just used to me. He's very quiet. And I was, I was extremely shy in those days. And, and, he said, well, let's see how it works out. So we pitted next to Gary and Irv the next year, and that's how it happened. And wow. Dad just stepped aside, and Irv kind of stepped in. And, and uh, you know, my dad, my dad had, ba- this is not thing he told Irv. He said that, you know, I'm taking him as far as he can. He rides the bike beyond my capability, and it'd be great. You know, I don't want to limit him. And I always, and I, you know, my, my dad, that's, that, was, that was difficult because he loved it. But he cared mm-hmm. more about helping me, mm-hmm. and I did that. Yeah. But why was this a special relationship between you and Irv? I mean, was it yeah. because because you had sort of the same character, same the same very very similar personality, but also the fact that um, he respected like my dad did. He respected me riding the bike. My dad never told me what to do on the motorcycle. He his his. He never said this to me. He'd say this to other people, but I built him Freddie rides them and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. we had a great relationship in that respect. He would never, he knew there's nothing he could do to help me in that respect. So Irv was very similar. You know, Irv wasn't a racer, but what was amazing about Irv and every rider that he's ever worked with will tell you this is that he has an amazing capacity to be able to under, you can tell him what it's like at the parabolic at Monzo on the three cylinder 83. I, that's all I worked on the uh, scarry getting off of scarry onto that long straight and then off the parabolica because that, that was the only way I could so stay close enough to Kenny to where I could put some pressure on him and all weekend that's all I worked on and Irv I could talk about in the middle of a scarry you know in in the first in this the middle uh right and then as the transition to the left I was getting a push in that last little bit and I need a little more grip, but or a little less grip, but I didn't want to affect the grip at maximum lean angle. And so we worked on that, worked on that, worked on that. And as it ended up, it paid off. But Irv could understand that. He wouldn't, tr- he wouldn't, he knew where to draw the line between, okay, this is something you have to deal with. And mm-hmm. I think we can make this better. And that is such a, people understand, that's such a fine line of, of knowing you know, what you can really do to make it better instead of where you have some crew people and some writers, same way, that don't yeah. know how to say, I can make a difference on this and I, oh, I need help in this area, right? Yeah. And when you have yeah. a writer and a crew and a crew chief that, that understands that, how to deal with that and help each other, it pays yeah. off, you know? So in other words, he didn't right. really put any pressure on you? No, no. no. Okay, it, because- or, or he didn't. He, he, there's certainly this expectation, but he didn't, yeah. he knew, he knew how to help me. And, you right. know, he knew yeah. how to, 
you know, and so to answer your question more specifically, he knew when to help to push me and, and when not to, and, you know, how to help and, and have a good understanding of that, you know? Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Now the, the uh, 85 season started with you winning the, the Daytona 100 race, the 250 race. And uh, I think right. you even won the, the uh, Daytona won 200 and the, form, and the Formula One race as well. Yeah. So in a way, uh, the season got up to a great start. And then you um, moved on to the first Grand Prix, which was in uh, in Spain. Now you had twelve it Grand Prix. South Africa. You didn't South Africa, yes, Kiel Army, of course, yeah. 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 Um, you didn't ride all the Grand Prix. We don't have to talk about all the Grand Prix because we've got a limited amount of uh, time. Sure, but um, sure. but I guess Kiel Army must have been special for you, knowing that you had to ride the two hundred and fifty and the five hundred at the same time, or that is in the same weekend. Um, could yeah. you tell us a little bit about the two hundred and fifty race and the five hundred race? Yes, the first event at Kiel Army was obviously it's important, just like getting off the to a good start at Daytona uh, was important. But Daytona gave us a little bit of a misindication of where we were with the 500 because it, it there was no problems. Uh, that bike had gotten built late. I didn't get to do much testing. When we tested in Australia, I basically was still riding the 84 bike and adding weight to the gas tank to try to simulate mm -hmm. what it would be like conventional, you know, gas tank top. And so when the bike showed up at Daytona and then I go out, I win the 100-mile race, we're, we're in good shape and the 250 the same way. We show up at Kalami and immediately, immediately, the 250 was okay, but I had massive chattering problems on the 500. And um, I couldn't run the radial tire. And so I had to, and that was the other thing for that season that we were dealing with, besides new equipment, was we were making the transition completely from bias to radial tires. Yep. And so the performance was quite a bit quicker every place. Two, two seconds faster a lap. And, but we also dealt with these other issues, chattering and things. And so uh, I struggled all weekend with that. I won the 250 race. Uh, so I was hoping to get that out of the way right away because their body, that was the first question. We need thinking to win both races the same day. <laughs> but I won the 250 race. And then in the 500 race, I had a great battle. And with Eddie, I hung on to him as long as I could. I let it for a while. But he ended up getting by me, won the race, great job. And so we started off the season with the first and the second, going yeah. into the next race, which was in Spain. Yep. Now, Spain I, I, is a, a good example of push, being able to overcome a problem. On Sunday morning, I crashed in the morning warm-up on the 500, broke my hand. Um, when I crashed... Uh, the bike, as I was watching it, I came to a side and couldn't get my right hand out fast enough. That thing tucked on me so fast. Um, it went down. I couldn't get my hand out and broke my hand. That's why I got a knot there. I watched the bike as it cartwheeled through the through the ditch, and so they they get it back to the get it back to the paddock, and they start working on it. The problem was, is that in Spain, the, the 500 race is 11 o'clock in the morning because Juan Carlos at that time would cut, fly to the race and, and today, that day at Mr. Honda showed up. And so I'm in my motorhome. I hit my head pretty hard. My hand was, was swelling. And um, so I'm trying to get some ice on it. I'm sitting there and, and Mr. Honda, like I said, he'd come to the race and over loudspeaker, he said to the announcer when they welcomed him to the event, 
Um, Fred had just crashed. What do you think is going to happen? He goes, oh, he'll win. <laughs> so I looked at Mr. Williams. No pressure there. Yeah, no, now that, yeah, no pressure. And I said, well, I guess we, we're going to get out there. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, the 500 race was first. And I went out, my hand was taped up. And, and I led all but the first three laps and won the race. And so the 250 race was after lunch. And so there was a little bit of time and I was leading that race, but I had an exhaust pipe break and so I ended up ninth. So the, the first two races was tale of two fortunes, really. You know, I won the 250 yeah. race, had struggled 500 dops and in, in uh, Spain. And so, but we got off to a good, decent start. The bikes were, were working basically okay. But those first few races on the 500 was definitely, we had some issues with tires and grip and stuff and chattering problems. Yeah. There was a difference between you and Tony Mang and Fausto Ricci, who was racing uh, um, a Honda as well, because you were using the Michelin tires and Tony and Fausto Ricci were using the Dunlop tires. Do you think in 250 class that made a difference as well? Well, in the beginning, in the beginning, it certainly helped them because um, a lot of the development, you know, that we had, we did on the, on the, Radios, I did myself. I was basically uh -huh. doing all the development work in Australia. Show up with like three hundred tires. Um, like I said, we definitely struggled. You know, Eddie and all of us were on Michelin's, so that that yep. made it a little more uh, similar. But in the beginning of the season, like I said, on the two fifty, um, it, it would take a while for the Michelin's to come in. And but anyway, that was basically it. Uh, mm -hmm. And. So I, I don't think there was uh, overall. Usually, what at that level, there might be an advantage at certain parts of the race. Um, like I said, the Dunlops were always good about coming in quick and getting up to speed, and and then the Michelin's usually would take a little while. Mm -hmm. um, now, obviously, you'd been in the 500 class for a couple of seasons, and you knew you uh, your competitors, your opponents. But in the 250 class, you'd raced Tony Mang and maybe other riders as well. But that was something new to you as well. I mean, what was racing Tony Mang and Martin Wimmer and uh, Faster Richie Carlos Lovato? What was that like? Was it different well, to the 500 class? Yes, I, I, yes, it was. Uh, it was different because the bike it allows you to do a different type of racing. You know, the 250 is you can be aggressive, you can you can push the bike over the limit a little bit easier um, than you can on the 500, uh, especially in those those days with the peaky 500 engines. They were yep. my bike on my 500 on the way to 113 kilos. It was really light. Um, the 250 was around about 90 kilos, but the it, very, very light and very responsive. And so that in itself was a challenge besides racing someone else. On the 250, it was nice because you could, like I said, you could push harder and they were different personalities. For example, uh, I could tell the battle in Le Mans. And if you want to do that now, we can do it when we get to yep. Le Mans. Yeah, yeah. But, um, Le Mans was a perfect example of, of a race with Tony Mang. By the time we got to midseason, my 250 definitely started out a little bit stronger. I mean, you know, the work spike than the others. But because Honda was putting all their effort in the 500, basically development stopped on the 250. Tony and his crew chief, Tony, a lot of people don't know this, but he was a great engineer. And, he, mm -hmm. and him and his crew chief together were great at getting – They did that with – Kawasaki, exactly. They were great. They're doing that with Kawasaki and 
and with Honda. By the time we got to Le Mans, I could draft, plus he's smaller than me, I could draft Tony, but I couldn't get by him. So um, in the race, he got out in front of me from the start. And basically, I, I was quicker than Sir Marius, but by the time we get the front straightaway, I, like I said, I couldn't get by him. And, and so the only place that I figured I could get by him was the fast kink in the back. Now there's the chicane at Le Mans. So where that chicane is, it used to be just a fast left that would lead into the right, left, and right, lean on the front straightaway. So for about 15 laps, I would act like I was going to pass him on the left side going into it. And I needed him to move over about three feet. If I could get him to move about three feet, I could basically almost run flat through there, and I could go around the outside. Now, I knew enough about Tony. One, he doesn't make mistakes. He never did. And the other is I get one shot at this, and uh, I better make it work. And so lap to go, I basically he went in there and he dipped just enough to where I stayed on the outside and went around him on the outside over the curb. And I remember seeing him is out of the corner of my eye. He turns his head, looks at me, because he can't believe it. You know, he really <laughs> thought I was going to pass him on the side. But I got by him and got through the right, left, and right on the front straightaway just enough to where. And there's live video of this as we come over Dunlop. He's almost close enough to pass me on brakes, but I made it stick and I won the race. And so that's a perfect example of what his last race against Tony May. Carlos yeah. was completely different. Carlos at um, the Dutch Grand Prix in 85 did the best qualifying lap I've ever seen. And I stopped and I told Stuart Shenton, there's no one going to, I was a second half faster than everyone. About seven, eight minutes ago, it started drizzling. So I, Stuart yep. and I just started pushing the bike back to the garage. I heard over the loudspeaker, the announcers, to, you know, the Dutch guy, getting louder and louder. And he goes, Carlos Lovato, new track record. That's raining. <laughs> just, I mean, enough to where it's definitely. And it's the only time I ever did this. I told Stuart I'll see him back. And I walked back to the gate where they're coming off the track. And as Carlos comes in, I clap for him because... That's that's Carlos. He could do something yeah. like that that was amazing, you know. So but he knew. could also do stupid things as well. I mean, he was fast, yeah, but yeah. He's, he would crash as well. Yes, he would. He would. He would. Yes. Anyway, uh, talking about that 250 class, and you said that um, in Spain, in Jarama, you had first you did the 500cc class and then the 250 class, but normally it would be the other way round. The other way round. Could you that's tell right. us? Could you tell us what it meant getting? on the 250, then on the 500, especially on race day, because sometimes there was just a couple of, well, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes between races. What was that like, getting changed, putting on a new helmet, getting, um, let's say, accustomed to the bike again? That must have been very difficult, whether you did it with 250 to 500 or 500 to 250. Yes, leading, in, leading into the season, one of the things I told the crew, and, and I, if you look back, Part of the reason I was able to win the championship is the crew I had. I had Irv Kanemoto as my crew chief. Jerry Burgess was one of my yep. mechanics. George Vukmanovic was the other 500. Then I had Stuart yep. Shenton uh, on the uh, on the 250 that would basically run that program. You count up the amount of world titles between them, and it's a lot. But one thing I told him was, I said, we can work on things and we can develop things. And certainly my feedback and all that is in my ability to be able to, you know, immediately tell you on this bike or this bike. But as much as anything, the key is going to be is me being able to make the adjustment from one bike to the other on the siding lap. 
because if I get a bad start, if I, um, if, if something does happen, then if, if, if I lose that in the beginning, the amount of, it puts too much pressure on me or things can happen later on. Or I, and if I take four or five laps, get up to speed, and that's every single race that's like that, that's going to wear, wear me down as the season goes mm-hmm. on. So as soon as I would stop the 250 class and I'm walking back to, uh, you're right, I would drink as much water as I could. I would change gear normally and, and then get on the, the 500, go out, and immediately um, I would right out of the pits, get on the line. I would break at the point I'm going to break, even at a slower speed. So it's a visual, physical connection of making that transition. And so the siding lap as I'm going around, that's what I would do is I'd get on the line that I'd be running on that bike. I would break, even if it was less brake pressure, obviously, right? If I'm going in at a slower speed, mm-hmm. I can't use mm-hmm. much brake pressure, but I know where my turn is. And I had the ability to be able to do that. Now, that was not something that I just developed a skill that year. You got to realize since I was a little kid riding in Louisiana, my yard, I would wet the one corner, the other corner would be dry. I rode many different bikes. So I, I ingrained and learned the technique of being able to adapt to any condition on any motorcycle quickly. That was mm-hmm. the key and the foundation that allowed me to be able to do my job on Sundays. That was a normal situation that I and how I would approach it. The Where it became really critical uh, or, or a good example of of how little bit of time we had was in the Magello Italian Grand Prix. And at that Grand Prix, the 250 race was first. And, or excuse me, the 500 race was first. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, yeah, the 500 race was first. And so I won the 500 race in a battle with Eddie Lawson and Christian Sron. I'm standing on the podium. I'm getting ready to pop the champagne after they did the national anthem. And the 250 bikes are going out of the cold grip because the program had gotten late and for TV that day. So I popped champagne. I'll never forget. So I turned to Eddie and I, I, cause I couldn't drink it. I was having a race anyway. <laughs> I gave it to him and Eddie, Eddie knows that he didn't say much. You know, everybody knows that he didn't talk about, it. but he, he just looks at me and goes better you than me. <laughs> cause it was about, as it normally is a Magello, a hundred degrees. And, but um, <laughs> I went and, and got on the two fifty. All the bikes had left except Tony May. He was sitting there waiting for yeah. me. And uh, wow! And so we go out and and at the start of the race we bump started in those days. Yeah. And I didn't get a very good start and so on. But I was about 19th that first lap and I worked up and won the race. But but the ability to be able to adapt to the bike that was even though I got a, a bad start, but because. I, like I said, it didn't take four or five laps to get up to speed is what allowed me to win the race that day. Mm-hmm. You know, many other things, but I wouldn't have caught him as I did at toward the end of the race and won the race, you know? Yeah. Well, maybe I'm mistaken, but wasn't that the Grand Prix where you lost your contact lens and you raced with a headache in, in, in Italy? Uh, in the 500 race. Uh, yes. Yeah, yes. I think you lost it in. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. 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 So yeah. vision was a little blurred as well. Yeah, in the five hundred, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would say we put one in for two fifty race, but ah, okay, know. good, yeah. good. Yeah, I didn't race. Like the, I said, 
like I said, there yeah. were 12 Grand Prix, uh, Freddie, and uh, you won seven Grand Prix in the 250 class. You won seven Grand Prix in the 500cc class. Uh, by the way, um, there's a story of you racing the number 19 on your 250 bike. There's a story behind that as well, isn't there? Yes. The Well, my brother was always 18. And then for years, I raced 17 when I was little, when I was a little kid, because my brother was older. He was 18, so I had 17. And uh, I, I always called my brother, his name was Danny, and I called him Bubba, you know, typical Southern thing. But anyway, he, he was a flat tracker, and he actually raced at Daytona in 1970. He didn't do very well in the junior race. Never raced in the 200 or or anything. Um, and But, he, you know, he was he was a good rider. He just didn't have the same, same drive and determination I had. But so anyway, that's why I had 17. Well, uh, I started my professional career uh with number eight that was the number they gave me in those days you take the number they they would give you and um so at 79 um, i used eight and then in 1980 and um i was racing going to race in the grand national championship in 1981 and i was going to use 19 and that was part that was part of the reason why because uh, uh -huh. I was near my brother's, yeah, my brother's number. <laughs> okay. Now, like I said, seven wins in 257 in the 500cc class. And um, in a very, very wet Silverstone, you um, finished fourth in the 250 race. And that was enough to um, clinch the uh, 250 title. But there was no way you could celebrate with a big party uh, that, that win, could you? No. But the thing is, is that. When I when Irv and I talked about it, and I'm such a big believer in of you know how you your mental approach things happen in the way they do. I believe everything happens for a reason in many ways, mm -hmm. and I think you can, you can go into situations, and that that is such an important ingredient, especially at that level or you know, racing or any sport for that reason, but or that way. But I kind of. Told, I, I kind of felt that we would be in that position. My goal was if we got to Silverstone, I could, if I could wrap up the 250 championship there. Now, you can imagine, here we are, all this that we've gone through, and we're at Silverstone. And, I mean, the weather's horrible. And I, I woke up on that Sunday morning, and, I, and Irv and I were saying, this is what we'd always hope would be, is that we could wrap up the 250 championship here. Um and then that way I could totally focus on the 500. So I turned over that morning. I said, all I have to do is finish fourth. I mean, the, it's windy and, you know, Silverstone's that old World War II airfield. It's yep. one of the highest points in the UK. It's always windy. I mean, the wind blows side, the rain blows sideways there, you know. And so, and it was that kind of day. All I have to do is finish fourth. So I go out in the 250 race thinking, only finished four with two laps to go i'm in fifth place struggling to be fit and alan carter who's leading the race would have, you know would have won the race he crashes and it allowed me you know to finish fourth and to if tony won the race i wrap up the championship it was exhausting race mm -hmm. because and and i've said this so many times is that that was so anti my approach 
because I, it was about the minimum amount I need to do. So that's what I went at. I was tight. You know, the bike was moving around. I could feel everything in it. And, and it's extreme, you know, besides the fact that rain was, I mean, I would have to tilt my helmet and then going on a hanger because the rain was coming in my helmet uh, sideways. So anyway, I finished fourth. So yes, but I remember I'm, I'm standing on the podium and it's freezing cold in August. It's typical in those days in the UK. And I'm thinking the last thing in the world I want to do is get on the 500, you know? <laughs> and I remember, I remember because, you know, it just, it was horrible. So I get, I'm walking back to the pits. And I, I, I told her, I said, I said, don't worry. I said, I, I know exactly what I'm going to do. Took off my rain gear, which was, I was sliding all around with it. Just had my rain suit on. I didn't care about getting wet. Started the race, fourth lap. I had like a 16 second lead. Wow. Now, now part of that absolutely was I just had finished around the 250. So I knew where every, all the puddles yep. were and everything else. But the other reason why is that, you know, I knew if I won that race, won the next week, wouldn't matter what would happen at the last round. The other thing is, which a lot of people didn't know at the time, I mean, when I crashed the 250 in practice, I'd re-injured my hand that I'd yep. hurt and I broke again my hand that I'd heard it uh at harama so anyway i'm i'm out there 16 secondly and i just go i just you know and win the race and and was able to kind of ease up the last obviously six seven laps and and totally different i felt better and more rested after the two races after riding the 500 than i did what i went through riding the 250 you know the, because my approach was wrong you know i went out mm -hmm. and it was it was it was the worst uh, game plan uh, that I'd done all year. Was that right? Yeah. But it won me the championship. Yes, only because yeah. Alan Carter crashed. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so. would you say that knowing that you had to race the five hundred that same day, just a couple of well, less than an hour later, would you say that um, you couldn't enjoy clinching the title? You, it was basically just a feeling of relief. Yeah, it was absolutely relief. Yeah, and but you're right. I mean, besides the game, besides the way I approached it, and and the yeah. fact that I, you know, I was I was even though I won the championship, I was mad at myself because I almost caused myself that opportunity by the way I went about my approach to the race. But you're right. I mean, the fact that I, I had to get around the 500, there was no chance to really really let it sink in. And and for most people, you know, they 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 imagine themselves being in the fact of winning the championship, how overjoyed you would be. And yes, that is part of it. But the reality is, is is in that particular case where I'm having to go ride another bike, you can't let the emotion get out of mm. out of hand because you got to get refocused. But um, it's a shame in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes and no. You know, I, I guess my my idea was that I'll have a long time. A lot, lot more time in the future to be able to, to enjoy it. I certainly have. So, yeah. Um, did you decide before the race if you were going to wrap up the title, this was going to be your last two fifty race as well? Well, after the fact of what I did to my hand, yeah, yeah, um, because it was, it was, like I say, it was broke, and so the, yeah. it's got two, two weekends in a row. Uh, so at the time, and and so that way we would just take off. Uh, running at for sure, we would not run at the 250 in Sweden, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. so we could 
we could wrap up the yeah. championship. You know, at that point, we were it it had been, you know, in those days, obviously we run a lot less races than you to do today. But we also we we did a lot of, you know, riding the two classes. I base well, I I I guess I did basically run the same amount of race you run today. I was running twenty two races. So you <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. Well, yeah. Obviously it's for yeah. weekends. Um, then the, uh, the Sweden, the race in Sweden, you wrap up the title there, the 500 CC title with a big gap of 22 seconds to AD Lawson. That was going to be your last ever win and your last, yes. even your last podium in Grand Prix racing, because you mentioned earlier, your problems with your hand deteriorated in the, uh, 86 season. Now it's obviously it's, it's difficult to say, but would you say, you you achieved something that nobody had ever achieved. You achieved something that you wanted to achieve, but was it worth it? Because the the price you paid was quite high. Yes, but I think it's an accumulative thing. You know, I've I obviously been asked that question a lot about yeah. do you regret yeah. doing the championship in '85, and I always would say no. I and I've I've always said that because the opportunity i mean it's truly a privilege to get the opportunity to compete at that level and to do something that no one else has been able to do and to accomplish a goal or a dream that you have and obviously winning the championship in 83 being the youngest 500 world champion and then winning the championship for Ms. Tronda because he never won the 500 championship and then what we did in 85 um and in the you know having started HRC, been there, beginning, set the foundation of of the winning and and the work ethic that we had. All of those things were great, but what people don't realize is that I I'd, I'd raced, you know, fifteen years, you know, before yeah. that I'd started out at four years old, and so it was it was really the wear and tear of that. And and I was relentless when I was a kid. I'd ride four or five hours a day, five days a week, every day. Yeah. For years and years and years and years. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just race weekends that I rode or, or, um, and so it, the, all of those things added up and mm -hmm. certainly biggest toll and that's the way it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I spoke to somebody who was working with you. Uh, I'll mention the name later on if you want. And he told me Freddie was tactically, tactically very smart and very brave. But at the end of the 1985 season, he had lost much of his spontaneous personality. Maybe that was because of all the pressure, knowing that you had to do two races in a weekend, uh, wanting to to uh, wrap up two titles in a weekend. Would you agree with that or is it too well, like a picture? Yeah, well, it's, it's tough to say. Again, I think it's it's this accumulative thing. And I talk about this in my book uh, a lot, yeah. about the, the the sense, you know, that we go on. You know, I, I know in myself, I was, I was a, a writer that was extremely methodical in the way that mm -hmm. I would approach things. But at the same time, you have to have a tremendous belief in, in what you feel and sense on the motorcycle and trust that in, in, in when it's in the moment. I mean, you do. And so it's a, it's a combination of things. Well, I was like that when I signed with Honda, you know, um, in, at the end of 79, beginning for 1980, they had no bike, but I believe that's where I should be. And of course I go on and win 
the championships. Of course, they, HRC was created, all these things. And so it was the same thing at the end of 85. I'd gotten to the point where, you know, what else is there in many respects? And, and so that, that motivation had changed. And mm-hmm. uh, so it was, it was a combination of things. Yeah. You know? Would you say it was more difficult than you expected? Um, not, not so much more difficult. Um, but much more I demanding. Did, well, from the standpoint of we weren't prepared to do that, you know, it'd be like, mm. imagine it would be like if, if, you know, if Mark, for example, you know, there was talk about him maybe doing the Moto2, Moto GP at this was at the end of 80, uh, 14. And, but they, you know, they're winning the, the championship and, you know, the Moto2 bikes are basically the same. And so it's, it's basically the rider and things that he, and his ability to be able to do that, which he could, you know, to be able to, to adapt each bike and then things have to work out, you know, to yeah, win yeah. championships. You just do. You have to have a little bit of that luck and fate and things that go in your favor. Um, so, but it, but for 85, it was, I mean, we started up basically when I decided to do it, we didn't have a 500. We didn't even have a 250. Mm. And so <laughs> I'd spent, the amount of time that I spent a whole season getting ready for the season, you know, and the amount of tests and stuff we've done. So yeah, that was certainly, certainly challenging. And, and the fact that I only get one shot at it, uh, it was it. I wasn't like it was going to happen again. Everybody, we all knew that. And, uh, and so that, that took its toll. Absolutely. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it takes its toll and, and, and your ability to relax or your ability to how you, how you view things. Yeah, yeah. Irv um, also told me that um, I think few people realize how much, how how hard it must have been that season for Freddie. So um, I, I guess you will agree with that. I mean, it's it's difficult to really put into words how much stress uh, the, the the season brought with you, with it. Yeah, well, there there's that certain, you know, especially with me at that time, you know, and 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 you know, people, it w- it would be like. You're expected to do it. Mm-hmm. At the same yep. time, no one believes you can do it. And I, you know, feel all of that. You know, I, I would feel all that expectation. And also people want you to do it, but don't want you to do it. You know, it's it's a combination <laughs> of that. But and you expected you know, yourself to do it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I again, I, you know, I was certainly a perfectionist in many ways um, about going about how I went about my riding. I'd always been that way. And that's why, you know, you could say my Grand Prix career wasn't that long, but I've mm-hmm. been that way since I was four or five years old. And so to me, I was, I was always the same and it was always his trajectory, you know, going in certain conditions and I could always do things that no one else could on the bike. And, and so, you know, it, you, you carry that, you carry that, you carry that. And, um, it just, you know, it's, yeah, it's part of it. It's certainly part of it. But like I said, at the same time, you know, it, it should be difficult. There should be a lot of expectation, you know, it's, it's just, it, and, and that's why when, when I get asked this question about is, would you change it? So, well, no, I mean, I, I felt I was doing exactly what I, what I should be doing. And, uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, well, Irv told me uh, that um, I think he'd asked you how many championships you think you would be able to win. He said, 
um, you would be able to win three. So you got your three world championships. So basically, yeah. you should be happy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and unique <laughs> ones. You know, I mean, they were, they were certainly, you know, that moment, you know, and I can say this, Frank, that when I think about those years and when I think about all the times that I had, and this is from the time I was a kid, it's the people that I got to spend mm -hmm. time with. My dad and I, and us driving along Kansas and Texas in the middle of the night, we'd put in 100,000 miles a year. And that's when I, my dad's gone. He, he, in fact, last year, it was 20 years ago, he passed in, in October. And so when I think about it, and I think about it, the last conversation we had, it was never about the World Championship. It was about all those years that we shared together. Wow. With Irv and I, you know, and beginning when he built the bikes and, and we'd drive and the hours we spent together is how I learned how a bike works. And that is how what allowed me to be able to develop bikes once we got to HLC to do my part. And, you know, I think about Mr. Honda. It's when he put his hands on my shoulders when I went to his house in September on that Wednesday after winning the world championship at Emla. And I beat Kenny and he goes, thank you. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, he had been his whole life for that moment and me too. And, and so that, those are the incredible, incredible moments yeah. that, that I was privileged to be able to have with people that give the other things the perspective, you know, the struggles, the difficulty, mm -hmm. all of that, right? And yeah. so um, that's the biggest, you know, I've gotten so much out of racing. And, you know, certainly there's been struggles, but the, the great moments or the moments that I cherish are, um, again, moments with people and certain things I was able to do on the track when training. Wow, that's really great. You said you were privileged to to uh, spend that year with people. I think we were privileged to talk to you for, uh, well, we squeezed in uh, one season in less than an hour. I think we could have talked, well, I could have asked you much more, many, many other yeah. questions. But it was an absolute joy to listen to you, Freddie. And I want to thank, thank you, you very, it. very much for uh, taking the time. And I'm sure we'll, we'll meet each other again, maybe next year. You'll never know. But uh, okay. until then... Thanks very much and see you, Freddy. Bye bye. See you. Thank you. Dat was hem, Fast Freddy Spencer, over het seizoen 1985. Een historisch seizoen. De eerste wereldtitel voor Honda in de 250e C-klas op een tweetakt. En de eerste wereldtitel op de viercilinder, de NSR 500. En daarmee. Uh, ja, bereikt hij dus iets. Daarmee deed hij iets wat nog nooit iemand had gedaan, Freddy Spencer. Uh, we hebben veel met hem gepraat, maar er is nog heel veel meer over hem te lezen. Hij noemde het daar straks zelf al eventjes zijn boek Feel. Ik weet niet of u hem zo kunt zien. Dit is het boek Feel met daarop dus de... Deze kant moeten we op. De NSR 500 van 1984. Bijzonder interessant boek. Verwacht niet alleen maar raceverhalen, maar toch ook ja, wat diepere filosofische gedachten. En dat alleen maakt deze biografie al wel... Bijzonder. Dus feel van Freddie Spencer. Nou, dat was het voor wat betreft deze podcast, deze inlap. En ja, wat mij betreft een zeer interessante inlap. En we willen er natuurlijk nog veel meer maken. Laat ons weten wat je ervan vond. En tot die tijd zeg ik graag tot de volgende keer. Thank <laughs> you.